Good morning. Welcome again to Del Rio Bible Church. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Mark. We're going to continue our study in the book of Mark this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. It's our study this morning. We've got some important questions in our passage this morning that uh, Jesus asks, and so we're going to be looking at that, uh, prompted by questions by the Pharisees, and you know that that's never a good situation when the Pharisees have questions. Uh, they're not looking for information, they're looking for a way to get Jesus, and we'll see that in our passage this morning, but first let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we bow before you with thanksgiving, joy in our hearts for the opportunity to be together with your people, to be your family. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the way you help us to grow. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to share our faith with those around us. We live in a culture, Lord, that desperately needs Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray that we might be the hands and the feet the voice that you use to bring others to know Jesus as their Savior. Thank you for our salvation, which you have given us freely by simply putting our trust in your Son and his finished work at Calvary. Thank you that our security is not based on ourselves, not based on our good works or religious ritual. Our security is based on our faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that has given us an invitation to be a part of your family, to pass from death to life, and to have eternal life, life with you here and now, and life with you in eternity. Thank you, Lord, for all you do. Guide us in this important study, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our passage, <clears throat> excuse me, as I said, is uh, Mark chapter 10, and I'd like to read our passage, and then we'll uh, dive into it. Jesus then left, this is verse 1, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> it was because of your hard heart, because your hearts were hard, that Moses wrote you this law, law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And I also want to read 
the parallel passages in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, Jesus adds an exception clause in verse 9 where he says this, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And then in chapter 5 uh, and verse 32, this, which is also parallel to our, to our Mark passage in 5.32. But I tell you, Jesus says, that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Where I want to begin this morning is I want to talk about <clears throat> and introduce what we're going to be talking about today and at least next week. So we'll spend at least two weeks on this because it's really important. On the surface, it would seem that the topic is divorce, but the real topic that Jesus wants to introduce is marriage. And so we're going to mention what the scripture says. We're going to teach what Jesus is saying here about divorce. But we're going to talk also about how to have a biblical marriage, how to have the kind of marriage that God envisioned for us to have. Now, how many of you are familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards? Okay, a couple of you. Jonathan Edwards lived in colonial America in the 1700s. He was a pastor a teacher, a theologian, and an author. He was a giant in the history of the church in America. It was written about him in one of his biographies that in 1723 in New Haven, Connecticut, when Yale was a chaotic young college, an improbable couple met. Shy Jonathan Edwards was so bright that he had already graduated and worked nearly a year in New York and was still only 20 years old. Sarah Pierpont was a flighty sprite of 13. Edwards pursued her solemnly for four years. Then they were married and their real romance began. I love that. I love that. Then they were married and their real romance began. The sad part of it as we look at that today is sometimes it's after marriage that the difficulties arise and sometimes it's after marriage that it's not the real romance that begins but it is a battle between two people for control of a marriage. Difficulties come in. We're going to be talking about that. I like also what the writer said with Sarah, Edwards was rooted and grounded in love. She provided him with an orderly routine that hedged him against distractions and left him free to write his books. Her character became his proof that the distant God of his speculations was also a tender personal God who moves about in the midst of human affairs. In the last moment of Edwards' life, he did not speak about theology. He spoke of Sarah and their uncommon union. I absolutely love that. In the last moments of his life, this great theologian, in the last moments of, this life, of his life, this great teacher, in the last moments of his life, this great author and pastor, in the last moments of his life, 
He didn't speak of theology. He spoke of his wife. He spoke of his wife. That just really touches me. Touches me that they had this uncommon union. They, after courtship for four years, they were married and their real romance began. Now, we would wish that that would be the experience of every married couple, but sometimes it's more like the experience that uh, uh, Kathy and I were looking at, were reading, or excuse me, watching TV uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, most of our TV comes from the 60s. You know what I'm talking? <laughs> uh, we're, we're not watching this. There's too, too much stuff today that it's just not worth watching. Uh, so, so we reach back to the 60s, like Leave it to Beaver, right? Andy Griffith. Who can not love that? And uh, a show called Bewitched. Uh, and uh, Samantha is the main character. And she's reading the book Sleeping Beauty to her daughter, Tabitha. And in the, as the scene opens, she's reading Sleeping Beauty to her daughter. And she says, then they got married and that was the end. And that struck me. Then they got married and that was the end. And she pauses because she realizes what that sounded like. And she said, to the end of the book, that is. But sadly, too many get married and that is the end. Instead of the beginning of a great romance, it's the beginning of a great battle. It's the beginning of a great battle. That's our task before us, is to talk about what does the Scripture had to say about the whole issue of divorce? What does the Scripture have to say, more importantly, about the issue of marriage and the kind of marriage that God desires? James Dobson writes this, There are times in every good marriage when a husband and wife don't like each other very much. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands. In fact, please keep your hands down. I don't want to provoke any arguments about anybody, but if, any, if you've been married more than a day, <clears throat> you know the, tr the truth of that statement. That in, there are times in every good marriage when a husband and wife don't like each other very much. There are occasions when they feel as though they will never love their partners again. Emotions are like that. They flatten out occasionally like an automobile tire with a nail in the tread. Riding on the rim is a pretty bumpy experience for everybody on board. And then Dobson shares, I attended the 50th wedding anniversary to, for two friends a few years ago, and the man made an incredible statement to his guests. He said he and his wife had never had a serious fight or argument in the 50 years since they were married. Now, you would expect that Dobson might say, oh, what a wonderful testimony, but he doesn't. Listen to what Dobson says. That was either a lot of baloney or he and his wife had a boring relationship. I think that's closer to the truth. I think that's closer to the truth. Uh, when I read that, it reminds me of a story that, uh, one of my favorite stories. Uh, this couple were celebrating like 50 years of marriage and... Uh, uh, the wife brings this box and gives it to her husband. 
and he opens the box, and there are two doilies. Now, does everybody know what a doily is? Okay. There are two doilies and a pile, a stack of money. And she explained to him that very early in their marriage, she decided instead of being angry at him, every time, and and let the anger go, every time she was angry at him, she would knit a doily and put it in the box. And he's thinking to himself, my, he, he was so touched in tears. In all of our years, 50 years of marriage, there's only two doilies. And he said to her, but... I don't understand. What about this stack of money? She said, that's the money I got from selling the other doilies. (laughs) Well, as Dobson says, that was either a lot of baloney or he and his wife had a very boring relationship. Maybe both were true. To the newly married couples, I must say, don't count on having that kind of placid relationship There will be times of conflict and disagreement. There will be periods of emotional blandness when you can generate nothing but a yawn for one another. That's life. That's life. What will you do then when unexpected tornadoes blow through your home or when the doldrums leave your sails sagging and silent? Will you pack it up and go home to mama? Will you pout and cry and seek ways to strike back? Or will your commitment hold you steady? These questions must be addressed now before Satan has an opportunity to put his noose of discouragement around your neck. Do you know know that Satan is opposed to your marriage? Satan is going to make your marriage a challenge. Satan is going to try to destroy your marriage because when he destroys marriage, he destroys a home. When he destroys a home, he destroys a church. When he destroys a church, he destroys a culture. That's how important this is. Satan is an adversary of you being successful and me being successful in our marriages. Satan is an adversary to us. Satan has an opportunity before Satan has an opportunity to put the noose of discouragement around your neck. Set your jaw, clench your fists. Nothing short of death must ever be permitted to come between the two of you. Nothing. And then in another place, Dobson says, divorce often looks like the easy solution to a very unpleasant situation. However, divorce and its aftermath are difficult for both partners and rarely deliver on the promise of a quick fix. It it is usually far more painful than advertised. Everyone loses when a marriage turns sour, especially the children involved. Surprisingly, their grandparents struggle too. Certainly, there are no winners when a marriage begins to unravel. That's the importance of the topic before us. That's the importance of the topic of of Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. And I have to tell you that as I have studied, and I've studied this topic and these passages many times over the years, But I have to tell you, as I come to them again, and as I have been studying them again, the enormity of the task in front of me is daunting. The enormity of the task of communicating this session well with grace is daunting to me. There's the danger of being too strict 
and interpretation. Many are when it comes to this topic. Many interpretations are, are uh, fueled by a person's previous views and preconceptions than being fueled by the scripture. So there's the danger of being too strict, but there's also the danger of being too lenient. So there is a need to be gracious. And as I've studied and prepared and, and tried to present this material to you, I would like not to be too strict. I would like not to be too lenient, but I would like to be gracious. I would like to be gracious. There are two mistakes that are commonly made concerning divorce in the scripture. There are two mistakes that are commonly made concerning divorce. The first is this, not seeing the seriousness of divorce. Not seeing the seriousness of divorce. Malachi 2.16 says that God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Malachi, by the way, is the last book of your Old Testament. And in Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 13, Malachi has to deal with the issue of divorce or putting away among the Israelites. He says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. So it is true. We need to see divorce as it is. It's a serious thing. But those who quote, quote that God hates divorce and are freely quoting Malachi 2.16 forget that there are other things that God hates. There are other sins that God hates. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, I tell you what, if you want to turn there, Proverbs chapter 6, I'd like you to see something. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And then the writer of Proverbs names these seven things that God hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stares, stares up dissension among brothers. Do you notice what's not in that list? Divorce. When people hone in on Malachi 2.16, they're forgetting that God hates sin in general. God hates sin in general. Alistair McGrath in his book, the NIV Bible Handbook, said this, However, while God hates divorce, 
He does not hate the divorced. Let me say that again. While God hates divorce, he does not hate the divorced. With him there is always hope of forgiveness and redemption. And, and what a tremendous statement that is. With him there is always hope of forgiveness and redemption. So the first difficulty, the first mistake that's made concerning divorce is not to see the seriousness of it. The second is putting divorce in a character, in a category all by itself, treating it as the unpardonable sin. That's the second difficulty, the second mistake that's often made. J. Vernon McGee said this, what Jesus is saying here takes them back to God's ideal. We're going to see that in just a moment in Mark 10. Uh, takes them back to God's ideal at the creation before sin entered the world. Divorce was not in his plan and program at that time. He had something better for man. It may likewise be said that murder was not in his plan, but murderers have been forgiven. Divorce is a sin, but divorced people can be forgiven. And I think that under certain circumstances, they can be remarried. That is from a scriptural viewpoint. I don't know why we will forgive a murderer, but often refuse to forgive a divorced person. We act almost as if he has committed the unpardonable sin. We are all sinners saved by grace. It just happens that divorce is their sin. So we shouldn't put divorce in a category separately from any other kind of failure. And we should also not take it without the seriousness that we should. Um, so my, my goal in this week and next week, and we may go beyond that, but probably not this week and next week, my goal is this, to strengthen the marriages of our church. I want to strengthen the mar marriages of our church. I want to give each of us a desire to make our marriage all it can be and all that God desires for it to be. I want to talk about strategies for success in marriage. I want to warn against thinking that divorce is the answer. I want to warn against anyone who may be thinking that divorce is the answer. And that's my, my goal as we look at these passages. I have no desire to heap more pain on those who are divorced. I have no desire at all to do that. Um, we must note that stable marriages bring stability to society. And so we will be talking about how can we bring stability to our marriages? How can we make our marriages all that God desires for them to be. These are just some general thoughts before we get into verse 1. Uh, one of the most important of biblical virtues is loyalty to God. One thing that God values so highly is that you and I are loyal to him. You see that all throughout the scripture. Uh, I, I dare to say that sometimes we miss that and we forget and we don't see that where it is in the various passages, but loyalty to God is a very important virtue to him. And therefore, loyalty to our mates, loyalty to others is important to God as well. 
He wants us to be loyal to him, but he also wants us to be loyal to our mate. He wants us to be loyal to the people around us. That's one of the deepest biblical virtues is loyalty. Well, that's kind of, I wanted to lay out where we're going with this, and uh, let's get into the text. Let's look at verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Now, the first thing you always do is ask the question, Jesus left what place? What place is he leaving? Well, if we look at chapter 9 and verse 33, we know it is Capernaum. Capernaum is where we last see him. He's at the home of Peter and Andrew, and Capernaum is the last place we see him. So when it says he left that place, he left Capernaum. Now remember, Capernaum is up at the north of Israel around Galilee. And then uh, the text tells us that he went into the region of Judea. Well, that is south of Galilee. And so he traveled from Capernaum, which is in the north, through Judea, toward the south, and then we're told that he went across the Jordan, which means he left Galilee in the north, went through Judea toward the south, toward Jerusalem, and then he headed east to uh, across the Jordan, and the area that he would find himself in is called Perea, P-E-R-E-A. So he's gone from Capernaum to the area of Perea. Now you say, well, what's, I, I didn't come here for a geography lesson this morning, uh, and I didn't intend to give one. Uh, but why is this important? Why is the geography here important? Because Perea is where Herod Antipas ruled. Perea is the area that Herod Antipas ruled. Now, anybody remember what important biblical character I'm trying to give you as many clues as I can. What important biblical character in the earlier parts of the book uh, encountered Herod Antipas? John the Baptist. And how did that encounter turn out for him? Not good. Not good. And why did he have difficulties uh, that he lost his head, literally? because he questioned the marriage and divorce of Herod Antipas. So you see, there's nothing in Scripture that's just thrown out. Let's just throw this out there. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's written by holy men of God who were born along by the Holy Spirit. Nothing is useless in the Scripture. So what Mark is telling us is Jesus is winding up in the area of Perea, the area ruled by Herod Antipas, where John the Baptist questioned the marriage and divorces of Herod Antipas and Herodias. And because of his questioning them, he was put to death. Herod divorced his wife to marry Herodias. They had an affair. Herodias divorced her husband in order to marry Herod Antipas and that is what caused John the Baptist difficulty. He spoke against that marriage. So that gives us background. Jesus left that place, went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. I want you to notice something. Again, crowds came to him. 
Remember previously in Galilee, Jesus had ended his public ministry and he was spending time with what group? His apostles, the disciples. He spent time with them. He spent time preparing them for the trip to Jerusalem, preparing them for what would happen to him in Jerusalem. And now we find that he is once again teaching publicly. He is once again teaching publicly. The crowds are coming to him. Again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. Now, what I want you to see also here is, and if you have an NIV, I want you to write a word at the end of that sentence where it says he taught them. I want you to write the word again, again. And the reason I want you to write that is because the word again is in the Greek text, although it's not translated by the English translators. The word again is in the Greek text, but it's not translated in this passage. Why is that? Because literally the passage said, again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them again. Why is that important? Well, number one, repeating a word like that is for emphasis. It's to emphasize Jesus' regular practice of, of, uh, of reaching out to those around him, those whom God brings to him, and teaching them, and teaching the crowd. And the writers, the uh, translators, rather, uh, of, the, of the English translations don't translate the second again just for smoothness of translation. They do that in other places as well. So as was his custom, again the crowds came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them again the emphasis upon his teaching. That is, that is something we ought not to miss, the importance of a teaching ministry. The importance of a teaching ministry. Uh, we, we can whoop people up. I mean, uh, that's something most people could do. But wouldn't we rather teach? Wouldn't we rather people leave having learned something about our God, something about his son, something about biblical truth? And so teaching is important. I just, I just wanted to point that out to you since the word is not translated there. This is an important emphasis. Well, verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested him. And you could write beside that, tried to trap him. That's the way the NLT translates it. And I think that's a good translation. They tried to trap him. Some Pharisees came and tested him, trying to trap him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They are trying to trap him. Now, how are they, they doing it? Well, in several ways. They're trying to get him to contradict Moses because they will cite Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4 in just a moment, and they are trying to trap him into contradicting Moses. More importantly, I think, in this particular context, they are trying to trap him to get him to offend Herod Antipas. Remember, they have been wanting to put Jesus to death. They have been wanting to find ways, times, excuses to put Jesus to death. It would be easy if Herod Antipas could get into the picture and be offended by Jesus' teaching. And so they try to trap Jesus so that he might come at odds with Herod Antipas. And perhaps Herod Antipas would do, do their dirty work for him, 
or and put him to death. Uh, that's the second way, way they might be trying to trap him. A third way is to get him to take sides between two famous rabbis. Now, when it came to the whole issue of divorce in the Old Testament, uh, there's a major passage, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Uh, I'd like to turn to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. If you would turn to that passage. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, that's the operable phrase there, uh, operative phrase there, is finds something indecent. Uh, translating that is easy. Interpreting it is difficult and led to a division uh, between the rabbis that I'll talk about in just a moment. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds <clears throat> something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if an, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. They are trying to uh, get Jesus to contradict either Moses, contradict uh, the uh, rabbis Shammai and Hillel to the major rabbis who interpreted that phrase or trying to get him to offend Herod Antipas. Now, there was agreement among the Pharisees about several things. They agreed, number one, that Moses permitted divorce. They agreed that Moses permitted divorce. They agreed that only a husband could initiate a divorce. And they agreed that there was a right to remarriage that was assumed in this Deuteronomy 24 passage. When we are, let me get to the right page here, chapter 10, Pharisees came to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus asked, what did Moses command? He replied, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. There was no agreement among the rabbis on the grounds for divorce. The, it fell into two views, two rabbis, two famous rabbis, and there were schools that followed those rabbis, some who followed Rabbi Hillel, and some who followed Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai represented the strictest view of Deuteronomy 24, the strictest view of what something indecent meant. And he interpreted as divorce was allowed only if a wife committed some kind of sexual offense, some kind of immorality, was the only 
uh, reason that a man could put away his wife. Hillel, on the other hand, was represented the liberal view. In his view, a man could divorce his wife for any reason, and it gets as ridiculous as this, he could divorce her for burning his supper. It's just ridiculous. Deuteronomy 24 was given to regulate divorce, to control it, not promote it, to discourage it, not to encourage it. Divorce in that day was widespread. Divorce in that day was widespread. The Old Testament regarded divorce as a tragedy. The Old Testament regarded divorce as a tragedy. Deuteronomy 24 was given to regulate an existing practice. To regulate an existing practice. How to interpret something indecent became the crux of the matter. How to interpret something indecent. Was Shammai right that he represented the strict view only a sexual offense, a major offense such as adultery, immorality? Was Hillel right, divorced for any reason at all at the whim of a husband? They were trying to get Jesus to uh, side with one or the other. Well, the certificate of divorce was given for a woman's protection, was given for a woman's protection. It, and it was also given so that it might make a man think before he went forward and divorced his wife. The law of Deuteronomy 24 was meant to prevent frivolous divorce and to put divorce in a bad light. Now, <clears throat> there was the school, one writer says, of Shammai. They interpreted the matter with utter strictness. A matter of indecency was adultery and adultery alone. Let a woman be as bad as Jezebel. Unless she was guilty of adultery, there could be no divorce. The other school was the school of Hillel. They interpreted that crucial phrase as widely as possible. They said that it could mean if the wife spoiled a dish of food. If she spun in the street. Now that's the one that got me. If she twirled around in the street, that was a reason to divorce her. Uh, if she talked to a strange man, if she spoke, and I, I'll have a laugh at the next one, if she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's relations in his hearing. In other words, if she complained about her mother-in-law to her husband, she could be gonzo, gone. That's how so freely Hillel interpreted this. If she was a brawling woman, and that was defined as a woman whose voice could be heard in the next house, she could be divorced. That's how ridiculous it was. Rabbi Akiba even went the length of saying that it meant if a man found a woman who was fairer in his eyes than his wife was, he could divorce his wife. As you might expect, the lax interpretation is the one that gained the following. The lax interpretation is the one that gained a following. Well, so in verse 2, some Pharisees came, tested him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That was the wrong 
question. That was the wrong question. The right question, as one writer said, is, is there any way to restore a crumbling marriage? And the answer is a resounding yes. Is there any way to restore a crumbling marriage? And the answer is a resounding yes. Now, you'll notice that Jesus, again, answers a question with a question. We saw that a couple of weeks ago, and we've seen that many times. Jesus answered a question with a question. They ask him, is it lawful, referring to Deuteronomy 24, and he said, uh, they, uh, he said, what did Moses command you? He asked them a question, what did Moses command you? Jesus deftly turns the attention from the prevailing views of the day to the scripture. You see, they're trying to trap him in either Hillel or Shammai's views. And instead, what does he do? He directs them to the scripture. He directs them to the scripture. That's always the place where you and I are going to find our answers. We're not going to find answers to the questions that we have in the culture around us. We're not going to find questions to the answers to the questions we have in any place but the word of God. And it's significant that what Jesus did here is tend their, turn their attention away from the culture, turn their attention away from the theological discussions, and turn their attention to the Word of God. And that's an important lesson for you and for me, that we should turn our attention to the Word of God. It's a good practice for us to view the Scripture and not the prevailing views of the day. That's where we get our marching orders, so to speak, is by going back to the scripture. It, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard, Jesus said, that Moses wrote you. He replied, and I want you to notice what he does. He directs them. Now, remember he said, he asked them the question, what did Moses require of you? What did Moses say? And they immediately went to Deuteronomy 24. They immediately went to the one passage of Scripture that condones divorce and condones for many of them the lax view of divorce. But do you notice when he said, what did Moses say? They forgot a very important passage that Moses wrote. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Therefore, it wasn't Deuteronomy that they should have thought of. It was Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 where marriage was established. Marriage was established by God, and we are given a definition of marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. That's where we get our information. It's amazing to me that when Jesus said to them, what did Moses say, they immediately go to the laxest thing they could find. They immediately went to the one that they used to condone their wrong actions. Instead of thinking of Moses' passage in Genesis chapter 127 and chapter 224, 
Jesus replied, this is verse 6, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus goes all the way back to creation. He doesn't go back to Deuteronomy 24. He goes all the way back to creation. At the beginning of creation, what he's trying to say to you and to me is that we always need to go back to God's intent. We always need to go back to God's intent. What was God's intent for marriage? And I want you to see a second thing here. Jesus is turning their question around. They are asking about what are the ways that we can divorce. He is saying to them, I don't want to talk about divorce. I want to talk about marriage. I don't want to talk about divorce. I want to talk about God's plan for marriage. You see, we don't live and we shouldn't live, not in that day, not in this day, not in our day. We do not live at the level of Deuteronomy 24. We live at the level of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We don't live at the level of Deuteronomy 24, the easiest passage. We live at the level of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. We always go back to God's intent. What is God's intent for marriage? Well, it's found in Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. One writer put it this way, according to God's original design, marriage was a permanent relationship and a man was instructed to leave his parents and cling to his wife. In the words of Genesis 2.24, they shall become one flesh. Something of this unity is seen in the word uh, partner, which is used in Malachi 2.14 of marriage, which means joined together or united. The word partner implies harmony, a desire to work together to achieve life's greatest goals while sharing all of the hardships, the pain, and the joy. In every sense of the word, husband and wife should be inseparable. Husband and wife should be inseparable. Jesus goes right back to creation because you and I should not live at the level of Deuteronomy 24. You and I must live at the level of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and God's original intention for marriage. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. By the way, if in case you were confused about how many genders there are, there it is. Right there, God made them what? One and one is two genders, not a hundred. Two genders, male and female. That's the scriptural teaching. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Gender is integral, it's foundational to who we are as people. Adam and Eve are the first couple. God defines marriage this way, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. What does that mean? It means that one relationship is superseded by a new relationship. The parental relationship is superseded by the marital relationship. Uh, therefore, that's what it means when it says a man will leave his father and mother and he'll be united to his wife. Uh, literally, the idea is to stick like glue, to be glued together, to be glued uh, into one. And the two will become one flesh. Then that means many things. There are lots of 
sides to that. Uh, some, some writers say uh, man and woman becomes a new unit. Others say this is talking about sexual intimacy, and it, and it surely is. And another said that this union of male and female is as indissoluble as a blood relationship between parent and child. In other words, God defines marriage as a new primary relationship. Therefore, you should be number one in your mate's life, and they should be number one in your life. That's what that means. A new primary relationship. Be number one in each other's lives. Number two, and be united to his wife. Don't let anyone or anything come between you. Don't let anyone or anything come between you. And finally, it's it's defined as a one flesh relationship. We'll have more to say about that as we look next week at marriage and we look at the exception clause that Jesus introduces in the issue of divorce. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, help us to communicate well in this important topic. Help us to have your mind about it. And most of all, Father, help us to desire to be obedient to you above all and be obedient to your word. Help us to find our motivation, not in Deuteronomy 24, which was given because our human hearts are hardened against each other and hardened against you. But help us to find our motivation in the original creation order and your desire and definition. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.